This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, our dedicated books and comic show. I am just one of the hosts, Matthew Rushing, and with me as he is always, my good friend, Dan Gunther. Hey Matthew, good to be here once again. Uh, Excited for tonight's episode. It's going to be a little bit different. You know, it is going to be a little bit different and we're going to keep that in the bag until we get to the feature where we let that difference out of the bag. Uh, I hope it will stop making noise, but uh, (laughs) geez. Uh, Anyway, uh, what's really exciting, though, is uh, we had Ongoing 56 come out, and after Ongoing 55, The Legacy of Spock Part 1, we were chomping at the bit to get to this one. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Really exciting setup last time. Really great story featuring um, old Spock or prime Spock, whatever you'd like to call him. And kind of, you know, what he's been up to in the uh, in the J.J. Abrams Star Trek universe since uh, going off to help uh, found the new Vulcan colony. And uh, yeah, what he's been up to is a little different than maybe we were expecting based on what we saw in those movies. Yeah, it's it's very different. Um, I like to call him old prime. So, you know, get both of them, put both of them in there. Uh, But this this story, I I have to say, you know, coming from issue one, I was like, oh, man, they've really set up something special here. I I just hope that they can continue it. And I have to say at the beginning of the issue, I was a little bit iffy, but they reeled me back in by the end of it. And what's going on here is just so good. I really, I just, I don't want to spoil any of it. But, you know, we get to visit a a very familiar place. Uh, We meet a very familiar person from TOS. And we visit a place that we actually never visited in TOS, which was, it. it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a... There's a lot going on in this issue. It kind of reminds me of the last issue in that, you know, by the time you're at the end, you're kind of like, how did we get here? You know, it kind of takes you to some crazy places and, you know, really um, not the direction I was expecting this story to go. And I am a little bit I'm I'm not quite as jazzed as I was last time, uh, but I'm still on board. I'm, I'm interested to see where they go from here. So, uh, you know, uh, maybe not quite as uh, excited as I was last time, but 
you know, they've still got me. I'm still curious to see what happens next. I think the thing that this comic has is that's different from the other one, and it kind of keeps you from, like, really ramping it up even more, your excitement, is that you're starting to get into the middle of this story where, okay, where are we going to go next, you know? So it's starting to open up that thing of we've got more questions now than we have any kind of answers. So I can see why, you know, you might be feeling like that. But I think on a whole, this story is is a thousand times above anything we've been in in, say, like, Starfleet Academy, you know, uh, oh, this, this, I, I can't disagree with that. Definitely. Yeah. There's no comparison here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's funny because a listener said on Twitter, he's like, man, you must really hate Starfleet Academy. You always say something positive and it's, I, I tried, but it, it, yeah, this one I think is doing a good job of deepening the mystery and the storyline. And really, I think Dan, you'll agree with me, but they, they, what they need to do is stick the landing. Mm-hmm. And and I think that might be where I'm coming from is, you know, <laughs> I've been disappointed in the past with endings. So maybe that that's coming into play a little bit. I'm a little bit trepidatious. Um, but yeah, I like I said, they, they kind of go to some very different places here. And it does still have me interested. Like, I don't want to overstate uh that I'm, you know, not enjoying this. I'm still very much enjoying this. It's a really engaging story. I'm just, uh, okay, where are we going next? You know, I'm, 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 I'm not as excited, but I'm still on board. I'm still very interested in this story. Well, as you know, happens with all of us in fandoms. I mean, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Fool me three times. That's right. I'm still buying. I'm a fan. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> no, fool me four times. Well, yeah, you know, it It just goes on and on and on. I can't stop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I may not, you know, I may not enjoy Star Trek V The Final Frontier, but I've purchased it probably about four times in my life so you know vhs dvd blu-ray you know uh yeah waiting for the 4k edition oh totally yeah (laughs) you just really want to see how bad the special effects are in 4k (laughs) exactly (laughs) exactly well before we get into our feature discussion uh let me just tell you a little bit about where you can find literary treks uh You can find it, of course, in all the places you find your podcasts. If you're an Apple user and on iTunes, be sure to hit that subscribe button and leave us a star rating and review. This will really help us in the search results on iTunes and makes it possible for more Star Trek book fans to find us, especially in this, the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. And I mean, there are some big things coming this year as far as books go for Star Trek. So, you know, we're in for a really great year here. Uh, and if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find all of our shows here on the network on Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can stream and download the MP3 file from the website at trek.fm and grab the RSS link there as well. If you want to get into contact with us, we have a form on the website at trek.fm contact. You can also leave us a voicemail. We'd love to hear from you. Just look in the sidebar on the show page or go to go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm. We're also on Twitter at trekfm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. We also have the Babel Conference, which is our listeners-only group on Facebook. Just type the Babel Conference, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, or go to our website at trek.fm and click discussion on the menu bar. 
Now, special for our podcast here at Literary Treks, we have a group on Goodreads. There you'll find bookshelves with all of our previously covered books, as well as what we're currently reading, so you can keep up to date with what's coming up for future episodes. And of course, there are always great conversations happening about all the books and comics in the Star Trek universe. Dan, I'm really excited to uh, be here tonight to talk about what we're going to be talking about, which is Live by the Code. We're going to be continuing with the Enterprise series as Christopher L. Bennett's new Rise of the Federation book has come up. And it uh, just came out, so I hope everybody's gotten a chance to read it. And you know what's really fun, Dan, is we actually have a guest with us today at Literary Treks, which we don't do all that often, but it's going to be happening more and more. And you guys are going to love this guy who's going to be on with us a bunch, and his name is Bruce Gibson. Is that my intro right there? Or should I say hi? <laughs> yeah, Absolutely, you're just yeah. doing great, Bruce. Uh, I mean, I know you're new to this podcast. I got thing. thrown off when you said something, you know, great. And I was like, oh, I want to know who it is. And I was waiting <laughs> to hear. And then you said me. And I was like, oh, oh, yeah, that guy. <laughs> yeah, not, no, not David Mack or James Swallow or Una McCormick, just Bruce Gibson. I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> well, really, really, really happy to have you on the show, uh, Bruce. It's really cool to have another voice to talk to talk with here, for sure. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I, I mean, <laughs> I love Star Trek books. I never get to talk about it with anybody except typing on screens, like in forums or something. So this is kind of odd to actually talk about it out loud. So I'm excited. I really wish I had a book I was promoting, but I don't write. So, <laughs> Well, it, funny is, is that... That was code for Dan saying, I'm tired of just talking to Matt about Star Trek books. Can <laughs> never, we please get no, another never, voice in the no, show? No, <laughs> he wouldn't say that. He told me he was tired of hearing you talk, but not... <laughs> yeah, I feel like well, my, my character is being a little bit besmirched here. <laughs> <laughs> no, just my annoyingness is being told, finally, <laughs> to the listeners. Okay, um... Rise of the Federation has been, I think, a really interesting series as we have dove into this whole new world. I mean, Enterprise opened up a lot of things, but I think Christopher L. Bennett's books have really done a great job of of just opening the series more and more and really expounding on what it was like to be at the beginning of the Federation. You know, it's fledgling years and this book is is no different as we're still dealing with the wear problem that we've been having. Uh, not the Tupperware problem, but the wear problem. Uh, and we've also been in, in the sidelines. There's also the Saurian problem that's still going on. The Klingons are still out there causing problems. And who knew, but Denobulans and Antarians causing problems as well, which... I did that one kind of shocked me that that storyline I was wasn't truly expecting but there is a ton going on in this book and I think it was so interesting because one of the things that really comes up is this idea of the greater good mm -hmm. and what is it and it's really playing out for the federation as they're trying to figure out with starfleet when do we act how do we act and I thought this was huge, um, and this is, we're going to spoil this book, so if you haven't talked about it, you haven't read it, don't, don't listen yet. You know, uh, I, I thought one of the most interesting conversations in the book was Olivia and Tucker at the, towards the end, having this huge conversation about how and why she does what she does to stop this war with the Klingons, with the Federation. 
and uh, the, you know, with Section 31. And I wanted to ask you guys about that because I, I felt like it was such a pivotal moment for just this entire Rise of the Federation series about how do we go about living out the best ideals of what we've started. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's something that, uh, you know, is really kind of fundamental to the Federation. You know, this idea that they're there to increase and, and better the quality of life of everybody around. And in Section 31's eyes, that means doing things that may be considered by others to be morally reprehensible and that sort of thing. And it's, yeah, it's a very interesting debate here. Uh, and it's one we've seen a lot of, I think, especially in Deep Space Nine, but also definitely in Enterprise laying the groundwork for that era's version of Section 31, you know, which until this point had at least seemed to be a little bit better than what it becomes later on. But here we definitely see that, you know, when you have the power to do these things with no oversight, inevitably it's going to be... Uh, you're going to overstep those bounds, or at least in the eyes of a lot of people, overstep those bounds. And, you know, we see that play out here, and it's it's a very interesting direction to take this story, for sure. Yeah, and Tripp uh, is talking to Olivia about this, and, and he's like, you know, why would you why would you go behind my back like this? Why would you, you go and, and basically team up with Section 31 to do something awful like this? And she's pointing out to him, it's because, you know, with Section 31, you have to make hard decisions. And she was making that hard decision for him, whether it was right or wrong. And that's a dilemma he's got to face. I mean, if you're going to be in Section 31, you can't do things that are morally correct and right. The Section mm -hmm. 31 isn't really representing the Federation. We've come to find out that maybe there's indications that they're just out for it themselves and they're really not representing the ideals of the Federation. And I think we see later in the book that that's something that Tripp's trying to come to grips with. Should he stick with Section 31 and do what he's finding is wrong, or should he take him down? And it's it's a really interesting thing, too. And it it's funny, Bruce, it reminds me a little bit, and we've talked a little bit about it, uh, this whole you know Batman v Superman thing where uh, you know Batman sees Superman as having too much power, you know, unlimited unchecked power and is that really a good thing for any one person to have and the same thing with section 31 is it you know section 31 is akin to having absolute power corrupting absolutely and and you can see that starting to happen as to where they're justifying their actions of that it's right that they did what they did because they're saving the federation but as trip says look the things that you do have consequences and they're creating ripple effects and the more lies that you create the the worse that it gets mm -hmm. and I, you know we've talked about that a bunch dan on, on the show about how different stories um in the star trek universe create these lies that things are built upon and those always end up crumbling and again section 31 they are doing the same thing but at the same time um they get to do it a little bit better than most just because they're so far out of the reach of anyone. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're a shadowy organization in the background that almost nobody knows about, 
it's easier to get away with this crap, you know? Mm, absolutely. <laughs> and I, I love that they bring it all the way back too to the Enterprise two-parter that kind of set the whole Klingon crisis in motion. And, you know, Section 31 had a huge hand in that as well. And Trip points that out, which I love that, you know, it goes all the way back and like all of these things, like you say, have this ripple effect that carries forward completely unintended consequences of what at the time you think is a justified move, but, you know, has all these effects that uh, really cause a lot of problems in the future. And no one can see what those will be until they come to pass. Yeah. Where does what six, what Section 31 does, when does it stop? Because they keep mm -hmm. digging a deeper hole. Once they do one thing, it affects the next thing. And I mean, even the Klingon situation you're talking about in that two-parter, we deal with the ramifications of that in the storyline, even though that part of the storyline really didn't involve Section 31 for the most part. But mm -hmm. everything Section 31 is doing is having effects on other things that lead to the next thing. It's that ripple effect that you guys were just talking about. And Olivia sees that that just has to continue. You have to continue that ripple effect to support what has happened and what Section 31 has done. You need to go that next step to continue it going to the point that she says, I have to make that hard decision trip because Section 1 needs the conscious and you have that. But if you start making these decisions, you won't have that conscious on behalf of Section 31 and they need you to have that. Mm -hmm. I thought that was huge um, it, because that scene was really powerful that she is taking upon herself that responsibility of doing that so that it doesn't destroy another part of Tripp's soul. Because I thought what was so great about this whole storyline is the way that Bennett was able to show that, you know, we had wondered if Tripp would ever be able to come back from where he was and that this storyline as Collier uh, and being back in engineering, being back basically among his friends, all of them know now that he's back, you know, that he's not dead. Um, and he was feeling that sense of family again and that sense of belonging again. Um, you know, he got to be with T'Pol again in this storyline as well. And all of those things kind of repairing the damage that Section 31 and, and his missions have caused him. And she spares him that again, saying, look, we need you in Section 31 because you're the only one who still really has the conscience to change it, to make it better, to do something about it. And um, we get a huge shock about who she's truly working for. I realized exactly who it was a long time ago, mm -hmm. um, uh, but I, I love that they actually made it official of exactly who's been behind her employment yeah in a in a reveal that's kind of uh you know worthy of a bond villain even though he's not not really villainous but you know he's got this secret hideout in this remote location uh you know and and that final meeting that epilogue there i thought was just brilliant and you know trip's declaration that you know he's gonna go into hiding once again and fake his death a second time but before he does that, he's going to take Section 31 down. Now, it's kind of sad that, you know, we know he's not going to succeed there. <laughs> but, you know, it's really interesting that that's kind of he's he's got a new mission here. 
maybe he doesn't succeed, but maybe he actually turns Section 31 around temporarily. Maybe he ends up being the guy who runs it. I don't think that's that going to happen, be. but you never mm. know, you know? But That's really cool. I never thought of that, actually. <laughs> what I thought of is what if Trip is the person who keeps Section 31 from being as active as they are later on in the 24th century? Because obviously we don't hear a ton about them in the 23rd century. Mm-hmm. And so what if Trip is able to cripple them enough so that through the 23rd century, they're having to rebuild their influence? Yes, in you hear to hear folks. That's what I, I think, think that's would true be because really cool. Christopher Bennett, when he writes these things, he, he does point out that he likes to he likes to show why we don't see a certain something later on. So I can mm-hmm, see him go with that logic yeah. of now I'm going to explain why you don't see Section 31 in the 23rd century. Mm hmm. Well, and and there is a book during the 23rd century involving Kirk with Section 31. But, Dan, remind me, because I could be wrong, I think that's really one of the few instances we see them having any kind of influence. I think so, yeah. It's uh, it's called Cloak, and it has to do, it ties in with the Enterprise incident where they steal the cloaking device from the Romulans. Um, Man, I actually, I want to say there's another reference to them somewhere in some book, but I, I can't for the life of me think of it right now. But they're, yeah, very, very few and far between for sure. So, you know, that kind of makes sense even in the novel verse. You know, we don't hear a lot about Section 31 in that period. So, yeah, that makes a, an awful lot of sense. Perhaps Trip cripples them or, uh, or like you said, maybe turns them around. and, and He trips them. Is that, that's what he yeah, does. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> He trips him up. <laughs> oh, man. That was awesome. This is why we need Bruce on the show exactly. more often. Um, what was really cool that in this whole section as well, as we're talking about connections, was the fact that he explains, and this is probably one of the best parts of the book, was explaining why the Klingons are the way they are in the 23rd century, where, you know, the the bumpy heads and the smooth heads are all getting along. And as to why we see mainly smooth heads, uh, you know, in, in TOS, they've been able to find a way to make their peace with each other. Mm-hmm. And they, they do that finally in this book. And core is a huge part of that, which is really interesting because obviously he'll play a big part in TOS. And so uh, at least his family will. Mm-hmm. And so I really liked that we finally actually saw that connection and a resolution to that storyline with the Empire as to how they come about with making themselves okay with this, you know, aberration that they have among their midst. Mm-hmm. It's kind of interesting reading that. I was almost expecting the story to go in the direction of the smooth-headed Klingons. I'm not going to try and pronounce the Klingon term for them because I'm no, going to get it No, I wasn't going to do that either. <laughs> but, you know, I kind of expected that they would actually maybe overthrow the bumpy-headed Klingons uh, for control of the Empire. And maybe that's why we see only them kind of during this period. But I kind of liked that, again... Christopher Bennett does this thing where he kind of sets something up and then subverts your expectations just a little bit. And the fact that they're kind of coexisting side by side here, uh, you know, was not totally where I thought the story was going, but it makes a lot of sense for what we see later on. Yeah, I think this story isn't going to end. I think there's going to be something up in the next novel or two that 
focuses again maybe on that difference because there's between the different Klingons because they even mentioned the bumpy head Klingons which is so funny to be calling them bumpy heads but the <laughs> the bumpy head Klingons you know are kind of how racist jeez <laughs> we better hope the empire doesn't get wind that we call them this because okay. that could spell trouble <laughs> turtle heads r- rough heads I don't know what to call <laughs> but 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 they there's there there's factions I mean there's kind of yeah, they're they're kind of splitting up in themselves, and I mean they all kind of come together, even with the smoothhead Klingons here at the end. But I think it just shows that things aren't going to be, pardon the pun, smooth for the rest of history between these guys. <laughs> and what I loved about this, and this is one of my favorite parts of the book, was was the thing about the Klingons and about the the smoothheads and the bumpy heads. But you know, it's pointed out early that you know they the smoothhead Klingons are, are discriminated against just because they have smooth heads, but they are Klingon. They have honor, but because the other Klingons don't recognize them as having honor, they're re- they're ready to turn their backs on the idea of having honor and proving themselves as having honor. Because when they're going into battle and they want to send the war drones in, they're saying, Hey, there's no honor in sending a drone in to do the battle for us. And they're like, you know what? They, we don't have honor now. It's just about winning. So don't worry about mm-hmm. honor. Do the best thing to do to win. So it's just about winning the battle, not how you win the battle. And I thought, ooh, now there's a twist to the Klingons. We got Klingons that fight without honor just to win and those who fight with honor. And I want to see more of that later down the road. Mm-hmm. And then that really plays in with uh, Laneth at the end, you know, and the tactics she uses to defeat the the Klingon in the High Council there. Uh, you know, really going to show that, uh, you know, maybe it's not something genetic that's happened to them or anything like that. But, you know, the other the bumpy headed Klingons have almost created a self-fulfilling prophecy. You call somebody honorless enough, they'll say, well, OK, uh, I guess this is the game I have to play. These are the rules I have to play by to win. So, OK, so be it. Yeah. If you I'll treat some, honor, then. if you treat somebody different in a way that you're saying you don't have something, they end up start doing that. That's what starts exactly. to happen. And that's the wrong thing you do. It gets back to you don't judge someone based on whether they have a smooth head or not. You judge them by what honor they do show. <laughs> it's not about my head, man. It's about what's in my heart. Exactly. I can, I can um, see the posters. My now. heart is still Klingon. Uh, what's, what's great is that it also explains why that part of, of Klingon uh the Klingon race that is different, that has the smooth head, why they have a different attitude in TOS. Mm-hmm. Why they aren't as that warrior cast, you know, it's all about the honor. It's all about the honor. The honor. The <laughs> honor. It's all about the yeah, anyway. Uh yeah, it's just not all about that for them. You know, they have that kind of more devious nature that we kind of associate with Romulans later on. And I like that we're seeing the seeds of why that's the case. It, it's a it's a really nice thing to actually see here in it. It's really interesting because it kind of leads me to the question that really comes up the big in this book, this, this idea of interference. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're in this mess with the where and... We think we have the answers of how to deal with them in the book, and we realize that we don't. And this whole question of are we 
out here to play God with people, like that we know better than you, so allow us to impose our Kirk-like will on you. Mm. Um, and and all of the questions that this brings up, and really the birth of the idea of the Prime Directive that comes here straight from Admiral Archer. Well, this is you know to me what I found the, the really the most interesting part of this book. Because, you know, in these early days of the Federation, you expect that there's going to be a lot of mess ups. I mean, the prime directive in and of itself is almost proof that, man, you know, these guys must have really gotten it wrong at the beginning to have such a strict rule in place, you know, afterwards. Uh, And I love this idea. And it kind of comes back around to what we were talking about with Section 31 and the idea of unintended consequences. You know, they didn't intend to destroy civilizations, obviously, when they came around to, you know, take out the where. They only wanted to do good. But, you know, as we know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And, you know, without knowing all the facts and going into the situation kind of blindly, they really made a mess of things and set into motion a chain of events that, you know, profoundly alters uh, the civilizations in question in this book. And it's, it's really, it's really disheartening that, that, you know, they ended up causing so much misery, really, you know, really it was the where that caused the misery, but, you know, the Federation really kind of felt helped it along here, uh, with the ultimate kind of destruction of these civilizations really. And, uh, you know, it, it, it really goes to show that, yeah, this is, this is a pretty big disaster that, it makes sense that the prime directive would come out of this. Yeah. The where is in the eyes of the Federation evil because the where takes the body of a human or whatever species and basically sucks its brain. I mean, not that mm-hmm. drastic, but you know, it. so it's like a Skynet brain. Sucker. Skynet, you took the words out of my mouth. So they, they can't understand why any race would want to have this, why any species, whatever planet or culture would want to have aware in its midst. But we find out that these are creatures that wouldn't be building ships and making technology. They, they, they have wings, they have feathers, they don't have digits to do what they need to do. They, they rely on the wear to survive. And I, I, I never get political, so I'm not making any political messages, but Here's the Federation deciding what's best for these people, that you d- the where is evil. You don't want this. Well, isn't that saying the same thing that maybe America does when, you know, or, or other religions do try to enforce their thoughts or their religion onto other cultures? And that may be a good thing in some cases, but there's some that it could be really devastating because that doesn't really work for them, at least not now. Maybe there needs a more gradual change. It shouldn't be a drastic change because it really could be devastating to that society. Mm-hmm. Well, and it was really interesting, too, because this whole idea of how the where had preyed on races that would accept it because they would never have had the opportunity to probably evolve to the point that they did without the where. You know, none of these races were going to have that ability to... Uh, create advanced technology because they didn't have what they needed to do it innately, whether it was not having 
uh, dexterous fingers and thumbs or anything like that. They just it, it wasn't going to evolve in them most likely. And yet, the wear created a society that would never have been possible if it hadn't been for it inserting itself into that. But is system. that the best thing for them? I mean, mm-hmm. do you have to right? Evolve? And and that and that was interesting because to me it was the flip side of the prime directive of we just insert ourselves, we give people technology that they're not ready for, they haven't earned or anything like that and make them completely and utterly dependent on it. And they don't know how to live without it, but they also don't really know anything about it. And that was a really, I I think that was a fascinating conversation in the book uh, because it's turning the interference on its head. And I I think the where part, it, it to me it reinforces where Archer's coming from, saying, look, we don't have the right to go into uh, societies that haven't earned space flight and interfere, give them technology, or show them that there is a certain type of technology out there in the universe that they're not ready for. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, he could really point to all of those societies to Shran and be like, but look what happens when they're given what they're not ready for, what they can't understand. It basically makes them slaves to something to which they're, they, they have no control over whatsoever. You know, the Federation and all of its members have earned their mastery of their technology by trial and error. It doesn't control them. We control it. And the danger here really is this mind-sucking Skynet that, takes over um that and i just thought that was really fascinating mm-hmm. it's the kind of debate that like you know when enterprise was on the air i kind of wish they did more of this like they touched on it a little bit here and there but you know archer seemed to accept to paul's insistence that they not interfere fairly quickly which really limited them from making the kinds of blunders that you know we see in this novel and i feel like this is christopher l bennett's kind of uh rectifying maybe the shortcomings that and i I can't speak for him but maybe uh some of the shortcomings he might have seen in the television series enterprise and showing that these early days uh visiting other civilizations there would be a lot of screw-ups and uh you know that the Enterprise television series was just maybe a little bit too careful about that. And we needed to see more of these early missteps. Absolutely. And that's the thing that Shran is saying to Archer. And that is, you know, you, you're trying to come up with this prime directive of non-interference, but if we don't interfere, we're, we're not taking any chances. I mean, we're going to make mistakes. We can't just step away and watch other societies harm themselves don't we need to step in and it's that age-old question we that comes up in star trek in all the series of when when do you step in and do the right thing or do you allow it to play out for itself when is Mm -hmm. what is that fine line of interfering that's going to be a bad situation turn worse or is it actually going to make it better and even if it makes the situation better it have consequences later that could be bad it's a very fine line and shran saying to archer we can't be so careful we still have to to try to get involved at times and we we're going to make mistakes and we're just going to have to accept it well and i think that that's where 
the Star Trek adherence to the evolutionary philosophy comes in because according to that, the Prime Directive really is the Prime Directive you, you, in the sense that it is not our job to go out there and play God because uh, nature will take its course on all of these other planets just as it should. It's not our responsibility to come in and say that we know better because we don't have a right to say that we know better because who's to say their evolution is not what should happen? You know, like you, there, there's no right for us to go out there and impose our beliefs in our system on anyone Right, but else. you're saying nature, but in the case in this situation, it's not just about nature. The where had interfered. Well, and, and that's true. That is very true. So that does create, I think that maybe creates one of the few instances where the prime, where <laughs> the prime directive uh, can be bent because they have therefore been influenced by something outside and it makes it a little bit grayer of an issue, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so I, I think that Archer and Starfleet in the Federation at this point obviously has a much grayer subject matter than it normally would if it was just coming across a planet and they'd be like, well, we scanned that planet and the indigenous life forms on it are only at, you know, uh, the uh, Stone Age. So probably not a good idea for us to be. Well, down. and in mm -hmm. this case, uh, you're, you're right. In this case, we did interfere when I say we meaning the Federation did interfere. Bruce, you interfered, interfered again. again. God. <laughs> I interfered this podcast too. And, but they, and by the way, it was by a ship, uh, Endorian ship named Enterprise, which is cool. But mm -hmm. <laughs> it wasn't about, maybe it's not so much about that they interfered, it's how they interfered. They, they were too quick to make a judgment call instead of really learning about the, the planet and the societies and the races on there and what the relationship was with the wear. They were projecting their situation with the wear on this, these other species and assuming their relationship was the same. So I think that was the one mm -hmm. thing they learned is like, we need to get to know them first instead of just making the assumption. Yeah, it was kind of an almost like automatically paternalistic view, like, oh, we, 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 okay, yeah, we hear you. That, that's fine. We know better. Don't worry. We got this kind of thing, which, you know, I think is probably the main thing that like a prime directive would guard against is that, you know, that kind of unthinking interference, which is, you know, the real problem, you know, and I find it really interesting, just as a side note here. Uh, that, you know, Archer and Shran come down on opposite sides of this. And it's kind of interesting that Shran is almost the voice of compassion here, as opposed to Archer, which is kind of a really interesting twist on these characters that I'd noted there. Um, you know, Shran, we usually think of as the militaristic guy, which also goes hand in hand with the interference uh, side of things. But he really comes across as compassionate. We need to make a difference in people's lives. And you know, the Federation values mean something and we should bring that to the galaxy kind of thing. Well, and that's a thing, too, that I guess maybe mirrors the whole thing that we see on Denobula and, and, and Tar with this idea of the fanaticism of belief, like that your belief is better or that your race is better. And 
it makes sense that Shran would have this kind of fanaticism because he's an Andorian and they have, you know, some serious emotion behind them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, what I saw in Archer was the wisdom that comes from being an explorer and a warrior. Mm-hmm. And he's seen both sides of the coin. And yes, he believes in the Federation ideals, but he also wants somebody to accept those ideals because they make that decision, not because they really don't necessarily have a choice because we kind of imposed our will on them. Right. You know, and I feel like Shran's idea would lead toward an imposition on people who really aren't ready to make the choice. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's it's kind of like setting a good example and leading the way for people and hoping that they they see value in that uh and you know that versus kind of manifest destiny we have to bring uh our beliefs and ideals you know quote unquote to the natives kind of thing and advance exactly. that cause forward yep. that makes a lot of sense yeah well, and, and I think that, you know, uh, Chris and I have talked about this before, I think when way back in Literary Treks and even on the Orb, uh, this idea of uh, the way in which characters and the Federation kind of presents itself as just being a, a good witness, speaking spiritually. And if you want to join us, that's great. We'd love to have you. Let us tell you about it. But not going in and doing the other side where a, a religion or a, a political ideology uh, makes you join mm-hmm. it, you know. And so that's a huge difference. And I think that really leads us to this whole idea of this fanatical racism that we're seeing on Denobula still with Antar and the animosity that they still have with each other and these hate groups that they have on either side that are still so focused on lifelong hatred mm-hmm. you, you know and not just lifelong but we're we're talking like decades centuries almost long hatred between each other that they've continued to foster but really not for any good reason mm-hmm. other than well they're that and we're this they're wrong we're right you know it's it's that utter black and white as if people or races can't actually change. Mm-hmm. I I really enjoyed this part of the book, I have to say. Um, and, and part of that is possibly because I just recently rewatched the episode, The Breach uh, from Enterprise. And, you know, John Billingsley in that episode is phenomenal. Uh, and, you know, the kind of... Um, challenges to his beliefs that he has in that episode and his attempts to reach his son you know uh who is filled with such hate and then actually kind of seeing that relationship here and seeing the roller coaster that that relationship goes through here uh where his son commits an act that's so horrible to make dr Flox say that he is not my son any longer and then to kind of get past that anger and come back to him. And, and I, I, I really connected deeply to that story um, because, you know, it plays out on a large arena as this kind of uh, cultural um, gap between these two civilizations, but also on a very personal level where it, you know, rends this family apart. 
uh, in more ways than one. And it was, I, I, I really, really enjoyed that. And the, the topics that it covers here, I thought were really important personally to me. It's really, you know, you're touching about, you touched on flocks, uh, kind of disowning his son, but then after some time he goes back to him and, and tries to save him from the situation he's in. And, it's all about forgiveness and it was a cruel act. It was influenced by others that got into his son's head and he forgave his son. And Mm -hmm. that was one of the lessons. And he tried to teach his son about forgiving the other race and their own race and the fights that they've had. I mean, bad things happened for decades centuries and hate's just going to lead to hate and you can't recover from that until there's forgiveness and i think flux Mm. realized that in himself with his son and try to get his son to realize that forgiveness is the route he needs to go to get over all these bad influences from this group that he started hanging out with Mm -hmm. yeah and i mean to me that's just i i love that story because uh, reading it, I'm right there with flocks at every turn. Like Christopher Bennett writes this part perfectly because um, I'm I'm totally agreeing with flocks when he says, "You are no longer my son. How could you do that? This this man is not my son. Take him away." I'm like, right on. That was awful. And then later on, you know, he realizes that that was a rash thought, and you, as the reader, kind of realize, "Wow, I you know, I kind of." I, I agreed with some things that I wouldn't normally agree with there. And it's the heat of the moment. It's the, uh, you know, brutal acts that, that bring that out, but it's really the calm contemplative part of us that realizes that forgiveness and, you know, that sort of thing is the only way to heal, whether that's a family or, uh, you know, racism or, anything like that. The only way to do that is for one side to finally say, I forgive you and the other side to do the same. And I I thought that was amazing. I totally agree with everything that both of you are saying. And I think the storyline in the end comes to a nice place. Uh, For me, I did find it to be maybe one story too much for this specific book just because there's so much going on and we're following so many different storylines, especially with with even just when you think about what's going on with the Ware and the Klingons and the different ships that we have that we're following. You know, we've got Andorian ships that are in Starfleet, uh, you know, the Pioneer, the Endeavor, all that's going on. We've got Archer back at, uh, you know, Command, all that that's happening. And then, of course, all that's going on in the Klingon Empire, too. That's a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I, I kind of felt like this storyline gets the short shrift in the end because there's just not enough space for it, really. And it took me away from the core of what's actually happening in the story and just kind of felt like it It kind of felt shoehorned in. And, and not in a terrible way because it actually is a good story and it's got a lot to say. It's just there isn't enough space to truly explore it. And I I felt like it could have been better served if the storyline had maybe just been 
set up a little bit so it could have been dealt with in the next book and allowed it to breathe a little bit more so that all the other storylines we already had going on here could breathe a little bit more. And to me, like, again, it, it's not that this storyline wasn't good. It's just I felt like maybe it would have benefited if it just had a little bit more space and felt more like instead of being like the D plot, <laughs> which it right. kind of is, mm -hmm. it's more like the B plot, you know, because there's just there's so much going on in this book. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I I can't disagree with you. Like, uh, I enjoy all of the storylines in this book, but yeah, there's there's definitely something to be said for the sheer um, number of of stories going on. And we kind of said something similar, uh, I think, for the last couple Rise of the Federation novels. But I think this one definitely pushes it uh, more so than the previous books have. Um, it kind of lends itself like just to a slightly unfocused feeling in the story a little bit. Yes. Yes. Uh, you know, just, I, I, I find it hard because like I say, I, I enjoyed all of the storylines, but yeah, it, it, it is a bit much at times I found. It's kind of like in Thanksgiving when you're walking <laughs> back with your plate and like, there's just too much. It's a full plate and like things are falling off of yeah, it. And you realize, you, you know, you're like, you can go back for stuffing. seconds, you know, <laughs> You can't even remember what you ate. You're just full. <laughs> That's how I yeah. felt too. I mean, once I finished the book, I I went back. I think a day later, and I thought about it. I was like, wait, what was that? Real? What was the main storyline? It's like I had to sit there and think about it because there was so much, so many different storylines going on. I'm like, but what what is the major storyline of this this book? I had to actually take a moment to think about it. That's. I mean, one thing I like about Chris Bennett is he puts so much information about the star trek universe he connects so many dots and there's so much in there that he that he borrows from different places whether it's episodes movies or novels or or comics and and that intrigues me so much but at the same time mm -hmm. sometimes it can be a bit overwhelming like it, it, it may be just a little too dense mm -hmm. but it, it's what i love and and sometimes i don't like about it but it that, I, if anything keep that going because i think it's really cool mm-hmm yeah, it kind of, uh, I was, as I was reading this, um, it kind of reminded me a little bit of, you know, some episodes of the West Wing where there's just like 40,000 things going on. And, you know, I, I think a, a lot of that is, is kind of intentional, you know, with the, the whole geopolitical everything that's happening at this time, it would make sense that there's a lot going on. But for a novel, it would be nice to get just a little bit more sharper focus on, a few of these stories and, you know, save, save some of the others for later. Um, seeing what Chris Bennett writes on Trek BBS, I kind of understand that he has a lot that he wants to tell in this era. And it makes sense. There is a lot in this era that would be really fun to tell, but yeah, I think the book suffers just slightly from, uh, a little bit too much, uh, too many ingredients kind of, uh, overpowering it. Well, it, it made me think, um, that with this, what I'd like to see from the upcoming books for this series is just some focus. You know, just uh, we obviously have set up some things with what's going on with Archer and Shran and that storyline. So it might be kind of interesting to see that internal struggle there. 
And then, of course, what's going to go on with Trip. Mm-hmm. So it almost might be nice if the focus of the next couple books maybe was just smaller, that it's about those things instead of everything that's going on in the galaxy at this point. You yeah. know, um, I don't know if that's possible, but I just feel like I'd love to have that focus. And so I could really dig in because I feel like, especially with that trip story, I almost feel like it just needs to be its own book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like, uh, you know, I'm a little worried that I, I don't think that's going to happen because, uh, well, for one thing, I think they're going to do something with Soria in the next book. Like it feels like there's set up there, you know, it was name dropped a few times, you know, Maltuvis, the the dictator there is kind of... Uh, solidifying power so you know i think we're getting some hints as to what's going to be happening in the next book and i feel like it's going to probably be you know just as uh plot heavy as these last few books have been for sure it could be um that's just my hope is that <laughs> uh, and it maybe even if it's the saurian story and trip story you mm. know, just just so that there's there's not so much going on that I I feel like my brain is so divided just trying to remember all the characters involved. Yeah. I actually did find myself flipping to the back for the the little cheat cheat for all the characters, you know, way more than I thought I would because yeah, there are a lot of people to keep track of uh in the pages of this book. Yeah, and I didn't even yeah, notice that there was really back are. there until I got to the end of the book. <laughs> well, one last thing that really struck me was the way that the wear come in to societies and even just the original society in which it was created and the society becomes so dependent on it and so enamored with it that basically it creates a site where nobody has to do anything people even stop learning basically how to take care of the machines because they're like well we don't need to it's fine mm-hmm. you know this it almost it felt like the sin of laziness. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the Federation has this thing in which people have everything they need and yet they're still driven to learn and to do more. This seemed actually more realistic that if you really gave everybody the opportunity to just kind of do whatever they wanted because everything else was taken care of, we might just become, you know, the Wally people, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, like that, it it honestly just felt more realistic and scary. This idea of sacrificing for luxury, what we do, what we'd sacrifice to keep the status quo of an incredible life where we didn't really have to work hard. Um, and now I just kind of sound like the fiddle on the roof. If I didn't have to work hard, yada, yada, <laughs> da, 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 da. anyway. Um, so you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like I, that really struck me as is like a and really kind of a nice mirror for the other side of what the Federation would look like if you really solve war and hunger and basic need. Does that drive people to want to go and get better? Or does it drive them to be like, hey, let's play video games all day? (laughs) I almost, that's really interesting. I almost, while reading this, was wondering and, you know, I I like your guys' opinions on this, I guess. it kind of almost felt like there was a bit of an environmentalist message here as well. Like, uh, you know, whether or not you agree with, with that interpretation or not, like there's the, uh, 
a society becoming so dependent on something that ends up being destructive and getting to the point where losing that would take you back, you know, in this case, it's, it's really extreme, take you back to not being a functioning society that can even use tools because of your, your biology. But, you know, in the environmentalist case, taking you back to a point where, you know, you don't have uh, cheap uh, energy, for example, upon which to grow industry and your society and that sort of thing. And going back to a point where, you know, you don't have uh, the, you know, fuels to rely on and that kind of thing to, to lose that would mean such a huge step back that, you know, you're so dependent on it that you can't give it up. Um, you know, I don't think the, the metaphor works perfectly, but I definitely thought there was maybe a little bit of that kind of written into this story. Well, and don't forget that there is a corporate play in this. And mm. I think there was a point too, where they said that they didn't even want to spend money anymore on education because you know, why, why waste money educate, educating these people if, if the where is doing things for us? We don't need engineers. We don't need farmers or anything. The where is doing anything for us, so we don't need to educate people. And like you're saying, Dan, about being dependent on something, and, and as you were saying that, it made me think about you know, even our technology. You, know, you look around and everybody's carrying around their mobile devices and they're on it, there's so much information that we can access. I can see a corporate society deciding, you know, do we invest in education anymore? Because people can just go online and find the information. Why do we need to learn about history when we can just, you know, bring it up in like two seconds on a device? It's almost that kind of play in there of, you know, when, when does money start to become so important and our, and we're so dependent on something that, we make a financial decision to pull away because technology has taken over. Mm. It made me think of all of those things in some way, like the, the danger of letting go of skills. Like I was just even thinking like math skills, like we let go of those skills because we have a calculator to do it, but we've lost the ability for our brains to actually think in a, an important way. I'm horrible at math, so thank God for calculators. I really am. Um, but part of that, too, is, has been, and I know it, it comes from the lack of continuing condition my brain to think in that way. Mm -hmm. So I, 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 I really feel that reading through this, there is a sense of this is what happens when you start to let go of things you shouldn't let go of just because we don't have to quote unquote and i think it's a it's a great thought and it's a great message in the end mm -hmm. it just reminded me of of something i saw posted and you know made me think of when i was a kid learning math and you know you want to use a calculator and your teacher tells you you know you're not going to have a calculator with you everywhere you go in the future <laughs> well guess oh what? yeah <laughs> what about my cell phone <laughs> Oh gosh. Well, I think I think this book is uh, definitely another worthy successor. Uh, but I'm wondering for you guys what your ratings are, Bruce. Uh, where did you end up falling for this one? Uh, I would say that I, I really did enjoy this. Uh, we were talking about how dense it is, but 
and and needing a little more focus but outside of that i i do like getting a dense universe a complex universe that's what's so great about tie-ins that it can go beyond what we've seen on screen so with with all the different races and all the different things at play in this rise of the federation i would say i give it four denobelian spouses out of five (laughs) very nice yeah, no, I really enjoyed this one as well. Uh, you know, to me, all of the storylines, kind of like I said, are very good. You know, I got into all of them. However, yeah, the the sheer number of them gives it just a slight lack of focus that makes it lose a little bit for me, just for the fact of, you know, actually sitting down and reading it and, you know, getting a sentence into a new chapter and saying, okay, no, wait, who is this again? Where? Okay, what ship is this? Oh, okay. Okay. You know, and, and kind of having to do that was a little bit tiresome. Um, but like I said, I did enjoy all the stories, so it only loses a point because of that for me. Uh, so I'm going to give this one four out of five, uh, phasers. I I mean, phase cannons. Uh, you know what? Phasers just sounds better. (laughs) Yeah. It just, it's so much easier to say. So let's just stay with phasers. That was funny. There are quite a few moments in, in this book where, uh, little fun jokes like that slip in. Yeah, and also, um, by the way, just real quick, I like the reaction Hoshi had to finding out the trip was still alive. It was totally different from mm. Travis's reaction. Yeah, and totally in character, too. That was great. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. The fact that she's like, yeah, I knew. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, I, I love that. I, I really like Hoshi's character, actually, in the end. Oh, and gotta say, hey, good for, you know, um, Val Williams and uh, Samuel Kirk to finally just get it on. You know, I mean, it, it, they they really turned into a Paula Cole song. I don't want to wait <laughs> for my life to be well, that, over. Well, that's three times you you, know, you've sung on the show. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's You're bringing it out, Bruce. But I, I, I liked that they finally resolved that storyline because it was dragging on a little bit much for mm-hmm. me. I do have to say, just as a quick little interjection here, I love that, you know, uh, she tore her uniform. <laughs> it was her that tore the uniform in that one scene. Right. Yes. <laughs> I was like, oh, yes. there we go. That That's was... where Kirk gets it from. <laughs> yep, exactly. It was nice. Uh, well, and, and lucky Sam. So, <laughs> yep. uh, but you this book, I, I think you said it really well, Dan, and I find myself um, being a little bit less forgiving of the fact that there was just so much going on, and um, I, I think it, it turns itself into uh, maybe a three and a half out of five Andorian Enterprises. Um, it's it is it it. There's a lot here. But I, I just would have liked to seen a tighter rein on the storylines so that I feel like they could have sh- shown brighter. And But on, on the whole, this, this is still a, a great book. And uh, really continuing on where we have been this year already, which has been great books. You know, I haven't had a book yet that I've been like, Ugh, that was just not very good. No, we're firing on all cylinders still, so... Very excited about that. Um, Bruce, I'm really glad that you joined us, man. Uh, you know, obviously, we have a great partnership over in the 602 Club all the time. But um, the fact that you're going to be joining us more and more here in Literatrex is fantastic. And uh, before we do let you go, I want everybody to know where they can find you online so they can start stalking you and uh, talking about Star Trek books wow, with you. Wow, stalking me. Maybe I don't want to give out any information. Hmm, let me think about that. <laughs> 
No, you want a stalker. Believe me. Just ask John Mills. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've heard all that. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. And I am in the Babel conference quite often, even if maybe I'm not posting anything. I'm definitely reading everything. And uh, you will find me doing some occasional things over at StarWarsReport.com. Awesome, man. Cool. Well, thank you so much for being on. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. It's been great. I've enjoyed it. Yeah, it was a really great discussion. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Wow, it was a lot of fun talking about Live by the Code. And having Bruce on really, I think, made that discussion even that much better. You know, having another perspective there to bounce ideas off of. I got to say, I got to start worrying about my job. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, Bruce was fantastic and it was a lot of fun. Uh, just having that third person on to bounce things off of. And I think it went great. And I love the conversation that we ended up getting to have mm -hmm. because of it. And so, yeah, I, I hope everybody will go out. And um, if you haven't read and you've been listening this long, go out and read Live by the Code because it's, it is fantastic. I mean, there's a lot we didn't, you know, spoil for you. Um, other than the fact that if you didn't know Trip was still alive, Trip is still alive, so sorry we spoiled that for you. Whoops. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, appreciate everybody being here with us. It, it was great uh, to be able to talk about Live by the Code, and of course, I really appreciate the fact that we even had one of our associate producers here on the show this week, uh, Ken Trip, Brandon Shamatola, and then of course Bruce Gibson, who is an associate producer through Patreon. Now, Patreon is a way in which you can help support the network. We are a listener-supported network, and we need your help to make sure that all this content that comes to you through Trek FM can keep coming each and every week. Go to patreon.com slash trekfm, and you can see how you can become part of our team. We appreciate everybody who goes and helps us out. Even just a little bit a month really makes sure that this network keeps coming to you at the best quality content we can possibly get to you and so we really appreciate it so go to patreon.com slash trek fm and see how you can be part of everything that's happening here at trek fm this 50th anniversary of star trek now dan when you're not trying to repair that torn uniform where can we find you <laughs> it seems like every time i get into a fight this weird music starts and suddenly my uniform's ripped i, I don't understand again dan cover up come oh, on I'm, I'm so sorry I, for the listeners i'm so glad you can't see this <laughs> but yeah when that's not happening uh you can find me online my website is treklit.com where i review star trek novels uh, I'm on Facebook at facebook.com slash treklitreviews and on Twitter at Kertrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. And I also have a new YouTube channel you might want to check out. I do movie reviews with some friends and a new Star Trek show there. So, you know, the internet is no shortage of places to talk about Star Trek and that's just called Kertrats Productions. Uh, and of course, you can always find me kicking around the Babel Conference again, talking about Star Trek because, you know, what else is there to do really? Not a lot, really. Yeah, exactly. And uh, Matthew, when you're not working hard into the night trying to draft the latest copy of Starfleet General Order Number 1, where can we find you? It is taking forever. But when I'm not doing that, I'm on Twitter at MattRushing02. I am also on The Orb with Chris Jones. We're talking about Deep Space Nine. I'm also on our 
general geek show called The 602 Club. We pick a great new geeky topic out of one of the fandoms we love, and we talk about that. It's so much fun. I hope you will join us there every week. Uh, We've just talked about the Flash Supergirl crossover. We talked about Batman v Superman. We have so much coming up this year. We've got more Bond. We've got, I mean, it's just, it's going to be fantastic. It just take my word for it join us in the 602 club uh you can also find me on my own personal blog at 42 life in between dot wordpress.com well thank you so much for joining us and until next time live long and read on you call that light reading to each his own number one